Hey guys, welcome to the Fostering Perspectives Podcast. I am so excited to be back and better than ever. On this episode of the podcast, we are able to interview the future Dr. Raquel Ford as she talks to us about her research in the area of education and foster youth, specifically girls in foster care and how the educational system actually shapes their perceptions and stereotypes of themselves. It was a really amazing conversation. And if you guys know me, you know I'm all about education and foster youth and making sure there is equal opportunity for all and that our foster youth are graduating at the same rates as those as those that don't have to encounter the system. So this is an amazing conversation. Stay tuned. Here's some great things. And like I said, we are rooting for the future, Dr. Raquel Ford. And as always, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Like, subscribe, review. And I cannot wait for the episodes that are coming out during the month of May. If you didn't know, May is National Foster Care Month. So stay tuned and check us out every Friday in the month of May. Raquel, thank you so much for joining us today on this Fostering Perspectives podcast. I am so excited to have you here. Um, If you could go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. What have you been up to? Where are you from? Thank you for inviting me to be here. I am excited to be here. So my name is Raquel Ford, and I am from a small metropolis outside of Pittsburgh. It's called Clarendon, Pennsylvania. But um, I do most of my work within Allegheny County, where I live, um, which is inside of Pittsburgh. Well, a part of Pittsburgh. Okay, Pittsburgh. I see you. I'm a I'm a Cowboys fan, so we're not quite fans of your Steelers. We rivals, but that's okay. Today we are not going to be rivals. <laughs> um, so obviously, this is our Fostering Perspectives podcast. So our guests have some involvement with the foster care system, whether that be through foster parenting. Um, working with youth that are in care as part of their role, um, et cetera. So tell me a little bit about your involvements with foster care and the foster care system. So I have worked in child welfare for almost 11 years. On May 10th, I will be with my employer for 11 years. Mm-hmm. So I've been working with this employer for 11 years, but I started before that um, as a contractor with um, my current employer. So it's been probably about 12, 13 years that I've been working um, within child welfare. So I have worked in many roles within my agency, um, you know, from the entry levels to now kind of like administration, um, middle management, somewhere around there. uh, (laughs) It's just not a place where you could put us. I'm not a manager. I'm not a caseworker, but I'm somewhere in the middle of there helping people to engage with family. So um, what I do is I help with uh, the caseworkers and, you know, contractors and casework supervisors. Um, I work as helping them through the practice model um, and just how to engage with families. Um, uh, recently, I've been a lot doing a lot of work around engaging with um, BIPOC families. So um, really, you know, with the climate of the country and, you know, the loss of trust that's already in child welfare on top of everything else that is being experienced, especially, you know, around race and, you know, systemic oppression is all those things. Um, So I've really been working with caseworkers with the um, agency to really address um, racial equity. And I also work with um, SOGI 
So sexual orientation, ident- identity. You know, I was about to ask you, listen, we're about to go backwards <laughs> and tell us for those that are listening that don't know what BIPOC means. What is BIPOC? Oh, what is BIPOC means? BIPOC is Black Indigenous People of Color. So, you know, working with marginalized populations. I'm sorry. I'm so used to use the acronym. It's okay. We do it all the time. People don't know what we be talking about sometimes when we get in our little jargon that we use all the time. Um, But SOGI is sexual orientation, gender identity expression. So, you know, really helping people to acknowledge, you know, how other people live, you know, um, that, you know, with everything that is happening, you know, with um, people being more expressive with their um, sexual identity and uh, and those things. And, you know, with um, so many people embracing their transitions, um, you know, with gender transitions. So we have to educate families, we have to educate caseworkers, how to really engage um, different populations that we are not used to engaging because right. everyone deserves to be engaged in the same way, you know, equity. That's that's very true. And it's interesting that you bring that up. This is, um, we are recording in March. So this is National Women's Month. So just to, even though we're going to get to the subject of why you're here today, but a little bit talk about these SOGI, this subject population and sort of what that means for parents that may be fostering youth that are trying to find or explore their sexuality and what they may be um, working with and how to, what kind of trainings have you guys offered or do you offer trainings to the foster parent? And so like very briefly, you know, what does that look like for parents that may have to deal with a child that's finding themselves? So with the most part with our agency is that we do a lot of contracting out So it is the contractors who are educating um, foster families of how to engage with, you know, their foster children uh, when it comes to things like that. But also, um, as I go into the homes with caseworkers and we're doing our um, conference meetings and our teaming meetings, that we are, you know, being an example and modeling for families how to um, engage people who are, you know, live, who are finding themselves in their sexual orientation, their gender identity. So, you know, really being, um, making sure, like when I introduce myself, my name is Raquel Ford, I'm a black woman and my pronouns are she, her, and her. So just saying that is giving an example and modeling how I want to be, what I want to be called. So, you know, getting, and then, you know, throughout the meeting, especially if it is someone, um, that's dealing with um, their sexual orientation, gender identity expression. I I am intentional in introducing myself with my pronouns so that that person can say how they want to be identified throughout the meeting. So it's really those like planting those little seeds that mm-hmm. help to um, see how we're engaging youth to be able to um, really embrace who they are. Right. And I, I guess I take away from what you said that although you have the contractors coming in that are doing the primary bulk of education, the biggest thing that we can do as caregivers, as those that are working with youth, is really just take the time to acknowledge how a person wants to be introduced and how a person wants to be addressed. And so yeah. if we take the time to even just do that very simple step of, hi, my name is Rashonda, my pronouns are, you know, she, her, et cetera, 
then at least I'm meeting that individual where they are and I'm respecting their yep. choice. So that's, that's definitely good to know. Um, yeah, we just learned something new that we weren't anticipating on learning today. Look at God. <laughs> so, Raquel, I know that, you know, when we first met and we were talking at the time, you were um, fostering um, a teen girl. How was that experience for you? What made you get into that? And how has it been, been since for you? That experience was eye-opening. It was interesting and it was life-changing. Um, so I got into it because um, she was a child in a community who I see have a lot of potential, but have had a lot of life factors that has, you know, not been great to her. Mm -hmm. um, so I always like made sure that I checked in on her, you know, just making sure she's okay. What are your grades like? What's going on? You know, how's your life? And I know that she had, um, she was experiencing some things and she had left home and she was living other places. And um, one day it was the wee hours in the morning and she called me and she's like, I can't take this anymore. I got to go. And I'm like, okay, so we're going to call your um, caseworker. So you can have this discussion with your caseworker. But for right now, I'll come and get you. So I went and got her. And she came to my house for a couple of days, then more tragedy hit her life. And um, she went back to the place that she was at. And um, she was ultimately removed from there and placed with me. Um, it's interesting because it happened around this time. Well, it happened March 12th. And then we know that <laughs> we were hit with a pandemic What yeah. the week afterwards, like, our lives changed forever. So um, it was really navigating a pandemic, navigating um, raising a teenager who had been on their own for a very long time and, you know, ra raising a preteen because I have a biological child who is, you know, she's 12. So she's moving into, you know, becoming a teenager. So, you know, it, it was a lot. Um, so just really, really trying to, you know, meet my foster child where she was and parent her in a way that I could best parent her while parenting my daughter in a way that I was parented. So, you know, it was, it's totally different dynamics because they were raised two different ways um, coming up. So a lot of times my daughter didn't explain, didn't understand why I parented my foster child the way that I parented her and why I parented my daughter in the way that I parented her. But, you know, I had to explain to my daughter, there's a lot of protective factors that you've had throughout your life. And um, these things has not been in place for her. So, um, you know, it was just a lot of navigating between that. So, um, it was like wearing different hats and really meeting, meeting her where she was at, right. um, to be able to work through a lot of the trauma that she experienced, you know, constantly trying to prove myself as, you know, um, not so I could be trustworthy to her because, you know, um, it's hard and always knowing that she was always in survival mode, um, really, you know, 
it kind of, I mean, well, I can't say it got in the way because that was her life. That's all she knew how to do was to be in survival mode. Um, So really, you know, learning that and it's totally different working in it (laughs) and then, you know, working in child welfare, but actually raising somebody who has been raised in child welfare and seeing the system from a different side. Perspectives, all about perspectives. That's exactly what this podcast is all about. I absolutely get it. But yes, keep going. I just wanted to to point that out there because you are absolutely correct when you talk about that. Being in it is one thing, but seeing it from a different perspective means a totally opposite, you know, a totally different thing. So yeah, Yeah, and I think just, you know, getting that perspective, I now have more empathy for foster parents than I previously had (laughs) Um, because I saw like even myself working in child welfare, working for (laughs) the system. And these are my coworkers that I'm working with and knowing like some of the things that I didn't think was fair as a foster parent and, you know, um, doing a lot of casework on my own, a lot of, hooking up with resources on my own. It was like, wow, like I really understand how foster parents feel now. So um, even when I'm, because even when I'm coaching caseworkers and Mm -hmm. we're talking about foster parents or even when foster parents are calling in, like I'm done with this kid, come and get them today. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, come on, let's think through some things. Let's talk about trauma. And, you know, it's like they're calling me like, Raquel, we need you to talk to this person, you know, to see what can we do to uh, preserve this foster home. And I'm like, okay, let me see what I could do to try to preserve the foster home because um, I really think that we have, we can't give up on um, the foster youth especially our teenagers, knowing what they went through. Um, I will say I talked a lot in past tense as I talked about my foster child. She is no longer here with me. Um, It was just a lot that came with, you know, I have rules. I'm still parenting her where she's at, but it was just like, she didn't want to follow the rules. So she asked to leave the household. I, I would, I, I had made up in my mind that I wasn't going to let her go. Mm -hmm. I was going to fight through everything that um, I had to fight through. Because like I said, I felt like I was constantly trying to prove myself to her. But what I wanted to do is to create a forever family for her. Right. So, I mean, right now I haven't spoken with her, but my, um, just because of who I am, um, my heart is always going to be open for her. I know that um, I got an email the other day and it was like, oh, the juniors is going to have a prom this year. And I was just thinking in my head, like I was really looking forward to sending her to the prom this year. and But I don't have that right now for her. Um, but I will be here for her. Um, so when she's ready, I'm here. 
And that's the most important thing to recognize. And you recognize it when she's ready, because when you got, you know, you, we have to think about it just as you're talking about how your biological daughter was raised and, and, you know, you are raising her differently because you're raising her as you were raised. The child that was in your home, the child, the children that tend to be in our home, they're raised differently. What, you know, what looks like family dynamic to them is very different from, for my son or maybe your son, what looks like family dynamic and what looks like, you know, outings and love and nurture and all of that. And so when we're bringing children into the home and they're not used to that, it takes them a while to be able to warm up to that, to understand what's going on. And a lot of times, you know, children even find themselves pushing that away because it's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. You know, I don't know how to receive what you're giving me because that's not something that I'm used to. So, you know, I definitely respect you um, for saying that, you know, you're here right? You're here. If she finds her way back to you, which she'll find her way back to you. Don't worry. But you're there for that. And another thing that you talked about that was really big was just meeting the children where they are. I think that's absolutely critical and crucial because again, we may have standards, beliefs, et cetera, but if children haven't been exposed and that's not what they're used to, we, we can't just come in off top like, nah, this is what you got to do, A, B, C, and D, because that's not where that child is at that moment. So no, we don't want to be too lenient to where it's like, all right, you've been being free and doing whatever, not going to school. Cool. You don't have to do it. No, we don't want to do that. But we also want to meet that child where they are so as we don't push them over sort of over that ledge where it's like, nah, this is this is way too much. This is different. Um, but you you brought up another topic that I'm like, all right, that's another podcast. Um, parenting, bio versus foster child. We're going to have a conversation on that later because I too have an 11-year-old um, son. He's 11 at the moment. And my parenting of him sometimes look very different from my parenting of my other foster youth. You know, it's not that I want to just be like, here's a set of rules for you and here's a set of rules for them. No. But again, going back to that meeting children where they are, respecting sort of what they've been through and what they've dealt with, that just naturally tends to look different. And so how does, you know, how do you navigate that as a parent, let alone from a child's perspective? So we might have to bring AJ in on the conversation or the baby in on the conversation to ask once. So that's very interesting. One of the things that you um, you mentioned just in our conversation was really receiving some some pushback from friends and family just as to, you know, why you do this, why you continue to sort of put yourself through some of the heartache that may have been, you know, with some of the nights in trying to care for somebody um, and just why you, you know, submit your family to having someone else in the home. So talk to me a little bit about what that meant, like when people would come to you, especially people that was close to you and ask you like, why are you doing this? And what was your response to that? My response was always, I know what the system does to black girls. Mm-hmm. That was always my response. Um, this, you know, historically, um, black youth, has been disproportionately placed into foster care systems. Um, There are so many disparities when you look at the foster care system as it relates to Black youth. And then you look at Black girls who often are forgotten about because we have focused so much on, you know, programming for Black boys. But what about our Black girls? So um, especially with sex trafficking, the way that it is, you know, you know, being in survival mode, I can make money this, I can make money fast here. And um, just not having the best outcomes and always 
in survival mode. I'm like, I can't put this child in far, I mean, and not in foster care. I can't put this child in congregant care because if she goes into congregant care, I'm afraid that she's going to um, be trafficked. Um, so they're like, but that's not, you can't save her. You can't do that. I'm like, but I see the research. I know what it says. So, you know, just being really, really knowledgeable about the research and about trauma and what it looks like and, you know, what is a traumatic response versus what is a a teenage response and what is, um, what, what it looks like on the other side for girls that I've actually seen go through the system and have been really poorly impacted by it. And then looking at the disparities and disproportionality and all of that. So I'm just like, it's, and, and then it's so much bigger than me. Um, and like I, I've told people all the time, like I didn't get in this field because I wanted to be in this field. Um, this is definitely God working through me uh, because I would not be here. And that was definitely God working through me, um, really, you know, allowing myself to be vulnerable, to be someone else's parents, to let allow someone else come into my house, allowing all these people to come into my house. Hey Amen. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> all them people. <laughs> I did ban, I did ban someone from coming back into my house <laughs> throughout the time because I just felt like you're disrespectful. And um really I had to have a teaching moment with her, you know. Um but um Really, you know, just that was always my response. I know what the system does to black girls. Even when we had went to court one day and I'm telling the courts about what's going on. And, you know, my foster child had hung up because we're virtual. She hung up on the judge and he was like, I'm placing her. And he and he said, Miss Ford, it's up to you. But if it's but right now. I want to place her. So if you say she goes, she goes into congregate care. And I told him, I said, I can't do that. I know what the system does to black girls. I told the judge that mm-hmm. because it needs to be acknowledged what happens to black girls in, in not foster care. And well, it can happen in foster care, but in especially in congregate care, yeah. what happens. So I just couldn't let that happen. Right. And I think that's very commendable and respectable of you, which actually lends me into our next topic. So Miss Raquel Ford is soon to be Dr. Raquel Ford. Um, Raquel is actually working on her doctorate and your education, your research, excuse me, your research for your doctorate is focused on the foster care system, the education system and stereotypes of our black girls and how those are formed amongst the three. So talk to me a little bit about your research and like how you got into that topic really. um, And what is it looking like so far? So um, I always knew through my program that I was going to do um, some kind of research on black people. Um, it started off with, you know, looking at racist bias decision-making, um, as it relates to cultural humility versus, um, cultural competence, you know, and really looking at those two, the differences between those two and how we make, um, decisions, um, based on race and, you know, our biases and all those things, the intersectionality, you know, all that stuff, (laughs) 
Um, but as I and I and I fought it and fought it and fought, it, I was like, I am not doing anything about the child welfare system. I'm not. I'm in child welfare all the time. But the more and more that I looked at research as it related to um, child welfare, and I'm also a school board member. So the more and more I looked at the research on um, black girl push out in schools, um, I was like, okay, there's something here. So then I began to, you know, read more about the education system and the child welfare system. And I'm not really finding that much information as it relates to foster care and the education system as it relates to Black girls. Mm -hmm. So I could find a lot of information on, you know, um, the foster care system and um, education, you know, how um, maybe there's some outcomes, but never about identity and, you know, about um, the different things, you know, being a black. So already, you know, being black, being a woman is a lot, but then being black, being a girl, being in foster care, and then, you know, forming your identity and, you know, and wondering how these systems are interacting with one another as, um, they help the girls through it. So um, really seeing how the system is talking to each other as it helps to um, black girls to form who they are um, as, you know, what is pushing them, what is pushing black girls into child welfare? Mm -hmm. um, the school is the number one um, reporting source to child welfare. And a lot of it is based on neglect. Um, and then the other part of it is the school to prison pipeline. So sometimes when they're pushing them, like, you know, putting those things on them and suspending them and, you know, now they're becoming involved in the human service field and the system is in there and then it's bringing more attention to the home and things and with um, more attention being brought to the homes, um, the decision that's, the decisions that's being made, it said, okay, pull these kids out of their household now um, because of the neglect the, in which I look at neglect and poverty equals neglect because if I can't, if I'm living in this circumstance, I'm not always going to be able to meet your qualifications to what it looks like for basic needs to be met. So, um, you know, just how the system talk to each other and when the systems talk to each other. So how are you helping these girls to um, really form their identities and how they're, um, you know, moving through life. And then, you know, when they begin to be in a foster care system and then get the other label on them. So now I'm black, I'm girl, I have your adultifying me. Um, and now I'm a foster care. And because I'm in foster care, it's my fault, right? So now I have all these targets on my back. Um, where, you know, my trauma could be, per, it could be looked at as something else, you know, um, that I'm insubordinate, that I'm not paying attention in school, that I'm sleeping all the time. It's because I'm constantly in survival mode. Right. So how are the systems talking to each other and 
you know, helping each other out as it relates to the girls. Yeah. And I, I think that's so, you know, interesting, you know, many may not know I'm also pursuing my doctorate and we connected because of our dissertation topics, right? Around this whole child welfare thing, which I know you said in the beginning, you were adamant, like you are not doing child welfare, but when you really look at it, there's a lot to your point. There's a lot of research out there that's around, okay, the foster care system and our kids transitioning out of the foster care system. Okay. And are they going to college and are they getting degrees? but we're not digging into the connection between the foster care system, the child welfare system that they're in right now and what's happening right now with their educations. We're looking years down the line um, and we're not even looking too at the social well-being of these kids when they get out of the system. And so that's really where my topic comes into play, thinking about you know, you're looking at, okay, the educational system and how is that creating these stereotypes for our young women that are in care? And I'm really looking at, you know, the policies and practices. What are we doing that, you know, what have we set forth as far as a policy or a practice that we have implemented and said, oh, this is for the betterment of the child. When really, if we look at the outcomes, we have teen pregnancies. That's really on the high, on the rise. Excuse me, I'm stumbling over my words. We have, you know, kids that are aging out that are homeless. That's on the rise. We have kids that are transferring right back into the uh, justice system. That's on the rise. So are your policies and practices really supporting these youth, you know, having positive outcomes or are our policies and practices checking boxes? Mm. And so I think that when we talk about the research and we talk about systems really connecting with each other and talking to each other, there's a big gap and there's definitely more that needs to be done. So if no one else has told you, I respect the work that you're doing in this research field, because I know that is going to get us to where we need to be to make some of the changes that we need to see down the road. Um, Most certainly. Yeah. So based on what you found so far in all of your research, if you were to talk to foster parents and tell them one thing that you would really want them to know around what they can do to, to remain engaged with their child, with the education system, such that their child doesn't feel like these stereotypes have been placed on them, or they don't feel part of this cycle that they just can't win with. What would you tell foster parents so that they can help their child to overcome some of those feelings that they may have arrived or even help them to not get to that point? Allow their child to talk freely. Okay. Um, really to hear their voice, and what they're saying and with their with being able to hear their child's voice to advocate for that child go to those parent and teacher conferences go to the school board meetings um talk to the caseworkers talk to the caseworker supervisor talk to everybody about what you're noticing and um what you have been doing so um always you know being the model um for what you want to see happen for foster youth. So I really, really, really believe in empowering the voice of the youth um, and void empowering the voice of, you know, black women and girls um, and really using our voices. That's why I'm looking at black feminist thought um, <laughs> and doing my work because I really think it's um, important for us to be able to tell our narratives and to be able to advocate for one another. So um, just really being an advocate in every system for their child um, by using what their child is saying to them and empowering their child to speak up. 
Right. That's, you know, that's amazing. And then just thinking about, like you said, just allowing their youth to have a voice to say what is concerning them, to say what they're going through, to say how they feeling even at school. Because sometimes, you know, I know even old school parents, they'd be like, your teacher wasn't wrong. You know, you may tell them how your day was and the teacher's always right. And their, you know, their opinion is always it is what it is. And that's it. But times have changed and things have changed and our youth have voices and our youth have feelings, thoughts, perspectives, all of that. And so we need to be able to hear that to understand and get the full situation of what's happening in the educational system, what's happening while this youth is in care and how that's, you know, how that's impacting how they see themselves, especially our black women, because it's very critical. You know, even as adult women, we're critical of ourselves and how we see ourselves and how we think others look at us. And so to think about, that translating to a child. We want to stop that as early as we can. Yeah. Just course correct. Yeah. So one of the things that I did with my foster child is daily. Well, I was doing it with my foster child and my daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, But I intentionally started it for my foster child was to send her daily affirmation text messages about how beautiful she is, how smart she is, um, what it looks like to be a lady and, you know, to be motivated and things like that. She received those. My daughter is like, mom, why you keep sending me these messages? I'm like, okay. So I, <laughs> one of the other things that I did was I wrote affirmations on the bathroom mirror with um, lipstick. So always having, you know, those affirmations and things, you know, just always planting those positive seeds that they could come back and, you know, it may not seem like they're growing, but it's a seed that you have planted and it's going to eventually grow because it's going to stick in them. Amen. Foster parents, if y'all listening, that is what you can take away. Daily affirmations and daily words of encouragement. And yes, while we're talking about, you know, Women's History Month and the perceptions um, and stereotypes of Black women, I think that is something that we also can do with our young males too, so that they know that you are more than the circumstance that you're in. And you can, you know, you know what it's like to grow up and be a strong Black African, um, African-American male. So thank you for that. That's a Good idea. Now, my son is along the ages of your daughter is 11. So he might look at me like, mom, what, what is this? But <laughs> we going to try it and see what, see what happens. It is so interesting that you said that because my nephew, that is one of the things that he is doing right now. He's, um, he's 23 years old. He's motivating, um, black boys, like to be, uh, I can't even think you are more than a statistic. It's, it's his thing. And it's like very different. It's his brand. So I love it. So yeah, just motivating the black boys as well as while we're doing. Yeah. That's we need, just need to motivate black people <laughs> in general, just everybody. <laughs> yeah, We root for everybody black. Exactly. Dinner, everybody. everybody. <laughs> got the Michelle Obama in the background like you yes you I'm talking that's why I, I love this picture because when I saw this it spoke so much to me like she's like telling her at the inauguration that you got this girl it's, it's one of those Dr. V things like you know we're not really uh saying what we're saying but we know what this means <laughs> it's in the eyes and in that finger yeah all in the eyes and in that finger and Camilla's like baby I hear you thank you so much yes you so much. <laughs> I love so it. amazing I love so, it 
I always end my podcast by asking the question of each of my guests. Um, since this is the Fostering Perspectives podcast, it's all about the foster care system, but from varying perspectives, I ask each of my guests, what is one thing from your perspective that you would like to see changed around the foster care system? The support of foster parents. I really think um, that foster parents need to be supported as well um, as we are supporting the foster youth who are in our homes. Um, a lot of the times people don't know what they're getting into. Um, it just comes from a good place in their heart. And, um, you know, you, the first time around, they, they're going to need some help. They're going to need some support. They're going to need someone to tell them what's happening and to help them to understand. And in that support, I feel like it would um, keep more foster kids within families and preserve foster families and create those forever families um, that a child will ever always have somewhere to go. Awesome. That's amazing. I, I'm biased because I am a foster parent. So I'm biased to your answer and saying, yes, <laughs> foster parents need absolutely some more support um, as much as we can get. So Raquel, soon to be Dr. Raquel Ford, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited that you were able to join us. We are definitely going to have you back because we're going to talk about parenting bio <laughs> versus foster and how we navigate that. Um, but until next time, thank you so much. Um, and we'll talk to you soon.